Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Twice every weekday on Vision and on demand in the free Vision Christian Media app. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. As we get things underway today, we're going to be talking about hope and strength for people who are facing real challenges and sometimes life-threatening illnesses. Our very special guest today has been a fighter since birth, defying the odds of surviving not only a rare form of life-threatening cancer, but being the sole survivor of a horrific cancer drug trial. His battle continues to this very day, having spent nearly a quarter of his life in hospital. Just imagine that for a moment, a quarter of your life in hospital. But today's story is not a sad story, it's a story of triumph. Michael Crossland has forged a business career and even became an elite sportsman playing international baseball. He's also at the forefront of today's new generation of inspirational speakers and is in demand around Australia and around the world. His autobiography is now an international number one bestseller across six countries. An award-winning documentary on his life by the ABC's Australian Story has been viewed by over four million people. Michael Crossland teaches keys to success, the importance of embracing change, and the mindset needed to achieve your goals. There's a lot in a conversation we're about to embark on today. Uh, We're going to be talking about the power of perspective, uh, conscious that so many today need a renewed perspective on life. Michael Crossland, a special welcome along to 2020. Neil, thank you so much for a beautiful introduction. You have uh, you have certainly pumped the tyres up, so I hope that I can live up to those expectations, mate. Very blessed to be here. Uh, Michael, your story is one of those uh, just amazing stories, and no doubt listeners today will embrace you as they get to know you, and I wonder whether we might just start at the beginning because this is where your story does start, even before you were one year old, diagnosed with an aggressive cancer of your central nervous system. I wonder if you can reflect on those things that happened to you in your very earliest times. Yeah, of course. I uh, I was 11 months old. I went to the doctors with my mum and my sister. My sister, she actually had an ear infection. And as we were leaving the doctor's room, I'm much more of a hugger. I don't really do the handshake thing. So right now, the way the world is, I'm finding it very difficult not to be able to hug people and and uh, anyway, I was uh, just starting to walk and I stumbled over and gave the doctor a little hug as I wrapped my arms around his leg and his knee brushed my stomach and he thought, that doesn't feel right. Um, I was taken to Coffs Harbour Hospital. That evening, I was airlifted to Sydney Hospital and the following morning, I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer of the central nervous system called neuroblastoma stage four. Uh, the doctor said there was no chance of survival to take me home and allow him to allow me to live the next few months um, back in Coffs Harbour. But as all our listeners, I'm sure uh, you would agree, we all have choices and the choices that we make each and every day can help reshape, remould and redefine our future. And my mum asked one question. I don't want to know what the chances are of my son dying. I just want to know what the chances are of my son surviving. And the doctor told my mum that I had a 96% death rate and go home. 
like all of us, we have a choice to look at the glass being half full or half empty. And I'm so grateful that my mum chose to look at my life not being 96% empty, but she chose to look at my life being 4% full. Uh, my first round of chemotherapy was on my very first birthday. My chemo cycle was nine days on, three days off, nine days on, three days off, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. Um, I was on that same cycle uh, for about 18 months when the doctor came in and told my mum that the treatment was no longer doing the job. The tumour had built a resistance. It had taken over half of my body and I needed to go into surgery. I was I was carried into surgery by my mum because they thought that that may be the last time she gets to hold her little boy alive. And six hours after surgery, um, the doctor walked in and, and uh, put his hand on my mum's shoulder and, and said to my mum, Kerry, we're terribly sorry, but we didn't get it all and there's now nothing that we can do. Mm. Uh, my dad and my three older sisters were flown from Coffs Harbour down to Sydney and they came into my room, sadly, to say goodbye. Um, but we constantly, constantly had faith and we constantly prayed through those really dark, challenging times. And the very next day, a doctor came in from America. He was trialling an experimental drug on 25 patients around the world. Uh, we all had to be terminally ill, and I fell into that category. The drug had never been used on humans before, only on animals. They had no idea what the side effects would be, but... We truly believe that outside of love, hope is one of the most powerful words in the English dictionary. And if you can instill hope into somebody's life, you can instill courage, faith, determination. It's amazing what one can achieve when they have a little bit of hope in their heart. So we obviously said yes. We started that trial drug with 24 other families. And within one day, sadly, we were all transferred from the oncology ward to the burns unit. The after effects of this drug were so bad that we were completely covered from head to toe in blisters. Uh, what they would do is they would wrap us up in bandages and lie us in bars full of ice trying to prevent our brains from frying. Um, but sadly, uh, within a very short period of time, uh, 24 out of the 25 of us had passed away from that drug. And I say to people all around the world that I'm one of the lucky ones, but I never say I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm still alive. I saw one of the lucky ones because I wasn't my mum. My mum had to go to death counselling once a week for two hours to deal with what was going to happen to a little boy. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I still remember um, I was six and uh, five, just, just before my sixth birthday, and the doctor took my mum outside the curtains. And I don't know why they take people outside the curtains to give them bad news. The curtains are not soundproof, but they take them out there. And, and he said to my mum, uh, Kerry, we have no idea how or why, but you can take your little boy home. But your son, he will never go to school. He will never play sport. He'll be a housebound baby. And if he reaches his teenage years, it'll be a miracle. Wow. And my mum come through the curtains and we believed in miracles. And I made out I didn't hear what the doctor said. I said, what did the doctor say? And she said to me, oh, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. Wow. Hey, let's reflect for a moment here, because at that age, you're really just on the journey. You mm -hmm. haven't got any control over what's happening to you. In fact, your parents are making the decisions, the doctors are making decisions about you. But you mentioned you had a praying family, and I wonder whether you can reflect on what your mum might have shared with you in those times since, as she talks about those things that happened to you and and the rest of the family because you talk about that power of hope that comes and hope comes 
when you're in touch with God. And that comes through those times of being a praying family. I wonder what, what sort of things does your your mother reflect on as uh, she talks about being a praying family when you were going through that time that looked absolutely hopeless? Yeah, we, we don't share this story very often. Um, but, you know, I'm obviously open to sharing it with you and your audience. Um, but we, we we were praying every single day, you know, and we knew that this burden was far too great for us to be able to handle alone. But we got to a point when uh, the tumour had taken over half my body. It was growing up into my heart. It was crushing my aorta and going into my spine where my mum really had lost faith. And she was getting to a point where it was why. Why me? Why, why, why? And when I had surgery, uh, the story that I didn't share with you is that um, after five hours and 40-odd minutes into the six-hour surgery, the doctor had told my mum that I flatlined. And he was actually walking out uh, of the theatre to tell my mum that I had passed away. And then as he went through the door, a nurse grabbed him, brought him back in, and somehow I was still breathing. And when I came out of uh, surgery and I came around, uh, there was doctors and, and my mum standing by my bed and she obviously was very upset and emotional and she was crying, but she was so happy that I was still breathing. And I looked at her and I said, um, I went to God's house. And she said, what? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I went to God's house. This is a three-year-old boy. Um and mum's like, oh, no, you're probably imagining it, you know, because we're on the planes all the time and uh, we're in the clouds. You're probably imagining that you were in the clouds. And obviously this is something that a, a faithful woman and, and someone that is led by God really wants to hear, yet she couldn't acknowledge it. She couldn't believe it because she lost faith. And I said, no, no, I, I was on God's lap. And he said to me clearly, um, son, now is not your time. And then all of a sudden I came back down and, and here I am. So I think from that day was this renewed sense of purpose and faith and to realize that those footsteps in sand are never ours. There are the times we are being carried. And I think that was just instilled this burning desire and passion to have God at the center of all that we, we did and do. And, and yes, you know, throughout my life, there's been times where I lost my way and, and, I, and I lost that focus, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that, I think, was a profound moment in our life that gave us a great deal of um, peace, knowing that there was something far greater than what we are that is really in control of us. Michael, it really is a miracle that you are here, that you were the only one to survive that treatment. And... Uh, but while we talk about a miracle that you're here and a miracle that we can hear you reflecting on these things, although you did survive, you have been left with some permanent scars. I did mention in the mm -hmm. introduction that it's a battle for you every day. Uh, what yeah. sort of things do you deal with even today as we talk? Yeah, well, I, I was told that I would never be able to play sport as a little boy. I told I'd never be able to go to school. Obviously, my mum wanted me to lead a normal life. I had a dream and a goal to play baseball in America. That was, that was the one thing that really had me get out of bed and keep fighting every day when the world was telling me to stay in it. But, uh, yeah, there, there, was some, there was some real big challenges. I, 
I, uh, I had my first heart attack when I was 12. I was, uh, I had glandular fever. Then I went into hospital. And as you know, I'm sure we go into hospital with one thing and we seem to collect everything whilst we're in there. Uh, so I went in there with glandular fever. Then I got the chicken pox. Then I got, uh, then I got the belly bug and then all of a sudden my whole world just shut down and my heart couldn't compete. So I was in hospital uh, for nearly four months and I really became a depressed little boy. Uh, you know, I, I finally got a chance to taste what normality was. I was playing the game that I loved. I was, I was making, finally making friends because I was very, very different at school. You know, I, I was getting picked on every single day at school. I, I say that sometimes my time at school was harder than my time in hospital because I never got picked on when I was in hospital. But I don't think there was a day that went by that I didn't get picked on. But because of all these challenges along the way, Neil, I learned some really valuable lessons. You know, the first thing that I learned as a little boy is that it, it's not the adversity in our life that defines us, it's how we deal with it. Another thing that I learned when I was in hospital um, was, oh, well, when I was getting picked on at school, I'm sorry, was that your value does not decrease based on one's inability to see your worth. Just because someone doesn't see a value in you, we need to realize that God gave us a purpose on this earth and we need to find that value and live into that. And uh, then when I was 12 and I, I had that heart attack, the doctor said I'd never be able to play sport again. My heart was too badly damaged. And again, my mum walked through the curtains and I said, what did the doctor say? And she said, um, son, the doctors told me that everything was going to be okay. You know, and she believed in me. And I think that so often we look in this world to try and find somebody to believe in us. But as long as that person that looks back at us when we brush our teeth of a morning, as long as that person believes in us, it's, it's remarkable what we can achieve. And as you know, I got a chance to play for Australia in the Australian Expos baseball team. I moved to America. I was playing baseball over there in Texas, got a scholarship to play ball. And, and then all of a sudden my health deteriorated again at the age of just before my 18th birthday. I suffered um, uh, another cardiac arrest when I was playing in Arizona. Uh, I, was, I basically was sent home. I, financially, we couldn't afford to be there. Emotionally, I couldn't afford to be there. My health was deteriorating rapidly. Uh, I came home. Did the Australian stories, got into the uh, the corporate sector, climbed up the corporate ladder very, very quickly. At the age of 23, I had 600 staff. Um, you know, I, I was making a serious amount of money and that I thought that the power and the privileges that I was creating was so important that I was so lost in my ways. And it, and it took me to hit rock bottom again and get very unwell. Uh, in 2009, 2010, I got bacterial meningitis. I got fluid on the brain. Then I had Bell's palsy down the right-hand side of my body. And I'm sure we'll delve into this, but this is, for me, that was that was really rock bottom for me. You know, that was probably the darkest place that I'd ever been to in my life. And, you know, my wife, she would come in every night into hospital and she would say, I love you, and I'll see you in the morning. And, and I would wait for her to walk outside and I would say, I love you and goodbye because I just, Really honestly, and, and being super transparent with you, I, I just I just didn't want to fight anymore. And every night I would lie in bed and I'd pray to God that I'd go to sleep and, and not wake up. But, you know, in those dark moments, we need to understand we must embrace the coolness of the shadows to truly enjoy the warmth of the sunshine. And that moment in my life was a real defining moment for me to understand what was truly important in this world. And that's when I started to get clarity in understanding that Success is not about how big your house is, it's about how big your heart is. And I think that our purpose in life is to get out of bed and serve other people. And, and that's when I really started to master this whole gift of giving and realizing that it was more about the more you give expecting nothing in return 
the more you shall receive. And it's about giving without remembering and receiving without forgetting. And as you know, that's when I decided to go out, leave the corporate world, open my own school in Haiti. I've got 270 kids at my school. I've got 40 children that we look after full time at my orphanage. Uh, and, you know, that, that was just one of the greatest things that have come out of such great adversity was because of um, the way that I dealt with it and the way that I had great faith and I never took my eye off what God was asking me to do, which was just, a, you know, a huge, a huge blessing on my life. And then obviously the speaking world erupted and I started to travel the world. I've, I've worked on stage with the likes of the Dalai Lama, with, with uh, Tony Robbins, with Sir Richard Branson. I've had videos go viral online. We've had one video get, get, uh, get up to 60 million views a couple of weeks ago, which is just, just insane because I'm just this very humble, very laid back, ordinary old Australian that's had my fair share of kicks and uh, I, I strive to get out of bed every single day and do my best to serve other people. And, um, you know, the health front again, Neil, you know, 2016 was a really tough year. That's when I, um, I got really sick again. They found four more tumours in my throat. They told me that I wasn't going to make Christmas. And um, I remember getting in the car, leaving the doctor's surgery, and um, my beautiful mum called. And she said to me, son, what did the doctor say? And I finally got a chance after all those years to return the favour. And I told her that everything was going to be okay. Yes. The things we say to encourage those that we love. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Michael Crossland. Michael wrote a book called Kids Don't Get Cancer. Uh, He's done some amazing things in his life, uh, whether it's climbing the corporate ladder or even reaching a level of elite sportsmanship in his baseball. Uh, Michael, before we talk about the book, let me ask you about the school and the orphanage that you opened up in Haiti, because uh, Haiti, a very poor nation, uh, they suffered some dreadful uh, earthquake disaster in recent years. Um, What drew you to Haiti? Was it just the poverty and the sheer hopelessness of the nation? I was actually working with the Toronto Blue Jays, a major league baseball team in uh, a little town called Dunedin in Florida. And a friend of mine called me and asked me whether I wanted to go to Haiti. But I swear to you, I thought he said, do I want to go to Tahiti? So I said, absolutely. And I didn't realize that he meant Haiti because I had never heard of it. Um, but then I realized that Haiti was only an hour and a half flight south of Miami. I wasn't too far away from Miami. And as you mentioned, the earthquake hit. It killed 316,000 people, left two and a half million people homeless. And when I did some research, I discovered that Haiti is one third the size of Tasmania, yet it has over 10 million people that live there. And the unemployment rate was around 80%. So I was just floored by what was going on and felt compelled to go down there. Uh, I I had aligned myself as I walked away from the corporate world into the humanitarian serving speaking space um, because I I just really wanted to make an impact. But I I aligned myself with a whole heap of charities. And then I realized you would donate $50 to provide drinking water to a boy or girl in Africa and $45 was getting chewed up in admin fees and $5 was going to the kid. When we went to Haiti, we decided to open our own charity called Frontier Projects, where every single cent that gets donated goes straight to the cause. 
And we went, we went over there and we rebuilt a school for 120 little kids. And now that school has grown exponentially and we've got 270 students. We found out that many of the kids were walking three hours of a morning and three hours of an afternoon to get an education. You know, my, my nephew, he walks about 25 steps to the bus stop of a morning to go to school. And if it's raining, he wants a lift in the car because he doesn't want to get wet. Whereas these kids are walking six hours every day because they know the only way they can break the cycle is to get an education. And then, you know, we, we were told we'd never be able to have kids. So when we passed this orphanage, it really, it really broke me. And I spoke to this one little boy and I said, what's the best part about living here in the orphanage? And he said, oh, the best part is I get a bowl of rice every second day. He said, when I lived on the streets, I was on the streets for four months after my mum, dad and both my brothers died and all I would get would be food out of garbage bins. And I was just completely floored. And I said, well, if that's the best part about living here in the orphanage, what's the worst part? And he said, oh, the worst part is of the nighttime because where I sleep, I have a little tarp over my bed and when it rains, I get soaking wet because the tarp leaks. He said, but it doesn't really matter whether it rains or not. I still get soaking wet because I share a bed with two little boys and both of them still pee their pants. And I just, you know, I, I reflect back on some of those things, but the life that we complain about is really only a dream for some. And I really wanted to go somewhere and make a difference in somebody's life who would never be able to return a favour. Uh, I came back here to Australia. I raised a whole heap of money and we went back and we rebuilt the orphanage from the ground up. And now we've got 40 of the most beautiful little kids I get a chance to look after 365 days a year, every one of them get three meals a day, they have a roof over their head and just as important, they're getting an education. And that one boy that we, that we were speaking to, um, you know, that, that was grateful that he got a bowl of rice every second day, he fast forward to 2020, graduated high school, he got a full-ride scholarship to Brazil to study engineering and he's just finished his second year of studies in Brazil and he's fallen into the Golden Keys category, which means that he is one of the top 10% of university students from around the world. He's one of the smartest kids on the planet, you know, and I think some days I get down, I get frustrated, and, and I think to myself, what's my excuse? And, you know, I ask all the listeners, what's your excuse? You know, this, this guy has the perfect, perfect reason and justification behind why he has failed or chooses to fail and be a victim in this world and live his life with a pity party but he's chosen to use that pain and suffering as the motivation to succeed and with a servant heart with God at the center of everything that he does. You know, these kids are just filled with so much faith. And I love that saying, you change the way you look at things, your things you look at change. These kids have got nothing. You know, they've got no mum, no dad, no brother, no sister, nothing, no laptops, no iPads. And they got out of bed this morning and they thought they had everything. And the reason why they thought they had everything is because they got out of bed this morning and they have God at the center of everything that they do. And it's just so inspiring and so remarkable. And the joy that they bring to my life is something that I could never return. You know, they have taught me far more than I could ever teach them. Powerful insight. Let's just remain here just for a moment because when you said, you know, you turned to humanitarianism, uh, you were looking to serve. You wanted to tell your story, so you began to speak. Uh, a lot of people might think that success in life is a self-serving thing and uh, gather as much to me as I can. 
but you've taken a different attitude there and I think listeners will be able to hear the sorts of things that are coming with your heartbeat here, Michael. The idea of taking your eyes off yourself and putting them on others, how much is that therapeutic if you know you've been going through some tough times, health challenges, everything that you'd gone through? How important is it to look outside of yourself to see others and their plight and make a difference for them? I think that, to be really honest with you, Neil, it becomes like a drug. It's so addictive. And I just love the feeling and the joy of serving other people. And I love that saying, I cried when I didn't get a new pair of shoes until I saw a boy that had no feet. You know, I think that shifting our mindset and perspective on life is such an incredible, incredible tool and a remarkable gift that we all need to master. And, you know, I, I really... I really started small with my giving. You know, I really like my lawns, my grass. I went out, I mowed my lawns, I mowed my neighbor's lawn one day. And that afternoon, my neighbor comes over and she said, did you mow my lawns? And I don't know why I lied, but I did. I just said, no, I didn't mow your lawns. I don't know why I lied, but I did. And she went over and asked my neighbor, Barry, he's 87 years of age now. Did did he mow her lawns? He said no. She went over and asked Steve. Steve said no. I kid you not, she walks back into her house. Two weeks later, I'm driving up my street and I see my neighbour Sue mowing Jessica's lawn seven doors down. She thought that Jessica had mowed her lawns and she thought that she was returning the favour. That afternoon, Jessica comes over and knocks on my door and says, Michael, did you mow my lawns? And I've got to tell you, half of me wanted to say yes because I thought if I told Jessica that I mowed her lawns, she'd mow my lawns. And obviously I said, no, I didn't. But I kid you not, six weeks later, I drive up my street, somebody had mowed my lawns. That was nine years ago, Neil. People are still mowing each other's lawns nine years later. I don't mow anybody's lawn anymore, yet every now and then my lawns continue to get done. So it's amazing when we just have this passion in our heart to give to other people expecting absolutely nothing in return. That's when we truly start to feel the joy and the excitement of giving back. And, you know, I I realise, you know, of recent times that we, you know, we feel so much greater when we give than we receive. And it's just, a, you know, it's just a remarkable, remarkable thing that I feel we all must do. And to, to transition or shift our mindset to be able to help and serve other people, not to get anything in return, is, uh, is really, really powerful and really important. You know, often as Christians, we'll talk about leadership and we'll talk about servant-hearted leadership. And I guess the reason why that becomes so important, and of course this is modelled by Jesus himself, is that that servant-heartedness is contagious, uh, that others catch that. And uh, you're telling the story that illustrates just how contagious it is when you take that leadership and become servant-hearted and not self-seeking. I think... There's two really great examples for me in regards to that, and I can't agree with you more. The first one is so often we hear people say, hey, can you grab me a coffee and I'll buy you a coffee tomorrow? That's the whole return the favour stuff. But I I really, and I can only imagine how your mindset would shift if someone said to you, Neil, hey, can you grab me a coffee and I'll buy somebody else a coffee tomorrow? You'd be like, hang on a minute, I'm going to spend my hard earned on you and you're not going to return the favour. But what I used to do was I used to pay for people's fuel. I, I really love doing it. I drive in, get my fuel, and then I pay for Bowser 7. And then what I used to do was I'd sit in my car and I'd wait for Bowser 7 to go in and pay. And then the lady or the man behind the counter would say, no, no, that guy over there in the car paid for your fuel. And then they'd look at me and they'd say, thank you. And, and then I'd drive off and feel really good. But then I realized the only reason why I was paying for that person's fuel is to be thanked. I was only doing something to get something in return from somebody else. 
And now I pay for somebody else's fuel and I drive off and it makes me feel amazing because now I'm doing something purely to serve and not to get anything in return. And I think it's a really different mindset towards our giving that can really have remarkable changes in our outcome of giving. Michael, just as we continue our conversation here, let me just reflect. I've been asking listeners on our Facebook page today, uh, responding to the question, how valuable is faith in God when embracing change or achieving goals? Just to reflect on a thought or two from listeners, Joe says an example of which is coronavirus and the quarantine measures. People have had to, to make radical changes, some of which have been forced upon them. It's the peace of God that defies all understanding which has helped us go through this period and to overcome the obstacles. Uh, Mel and Rod say, I've had the pleasure of meeting Michael on many occasions and have seen firsthand the impact he has on people by telling his testimony. He truly is one of God's greatest gifts to others who need hope and inspiration for anything in life. Steve says... This is the best interview I've heard in 20 years. I'll be buying the book. And let me just mention the book here because the book you have written, you've written a number of books, uh, but the one we want to talk about today, Kids Don't Get Cancer. And you wrote that book for a particular purpose. Take us into why the title and, you know, when you wrote it, why you wrote it. Give us some insights here. Yeah, I was uh, I was very young, and uh, I was told <clears throat> this story uh, when I was about thirty. And um, my mum tells the story that when I was diagnosed as a little boy, the doctor said, "Your son, we're very sorry, has stage four neuroblastoma. Um, he's got cancer." And mum said, "No, no, that can't be right. Kids don't get cancer." Uh, obviously, very naive. And then mum called dad and said. Um, Terry, you wouldn't believe it, but um, the boy has cancer. And Dad says, no, no, that can't be right. Kids don't get cancer. Mm. And then he called my grandparents and they said the same thing. But obviously, obviously kids do. And uh, sorry, I got a little emotional there. <clears throat> um, but what mum said to me when I was in hospital one day, she said, son, when you grow up and you've made an impact on the world, you're going to write a book. And the book's going to be called Kids Don't Get Cancer. And you fast forward 30 years and uh, I, I was diagnosed again with four tumours of the throat. They told me that my tomorrows weren't guaranteed. I remember saying straight back to the doctor, that's one thing we all have in common because no one's guaranteed tomorrow. But I know where I'm going, so it gives me great faith and comfort. So I thought I'm going to postpone surgery by four weeks so I could finish my autobiography. My goal for this book was to leave it as a legacy for my, my wife and my mum. I wanted to make sure that even after I was gone, I could still somehow in some way be able to positively make an Im impact on their life. And I wanted to ensure that I left a legacy. So that was the, the desire behind uh, writing the book, publishing it and getting it out so I could support them. And then I had surgery. Uh, unfortunately, they could only remove three out of the four tumours. The fourth tumour uh, is wrapped around my vocal cords. So unfortunately, there's nothing they can do about it. But one thing that I've learned in my life is the quality of one's life is not dictated, nor is it determined by the amount of days that we live on this earth. It's about what we fit into those days that allows us to truly live a remarkable life. And I know that when my time is up on this earth, my tank is going to be on empty and there's going to be nothing left in the reserve tank. 
last year I was on 180 flights. I spoke in 22 countries around the world. You know, I was fortunate enough to speak on stage in, in Las Vegas with over 20,000 people. You know, I, I've been very, very blessed to be able to achieve some great things. And um, I, I now, um, since that book was published, uh, we uh, donated every single cent to charity. We haven't taken not $1 from the book um, because that is a chance for me to not only leave a legacy, um, but also live into my legacy whilst I'm still here. So that's, that's where the book came from. That's where it was, uh, was discussed and, and the seed was planted in the subconscious mind at a very young age and then it finally came to fruition all those years later. Michael, a lot of your life has been very tough. Getting through those dark places, and no doubt there'd be days where you say, oh, I feel so relieved that today's not such a bad day, but then tomorrow is another story. Getting through dark places. Uh, let's talk about this because so many of us will go through times in our life where that darkness feels like it's overwhelming. Is mm-hmm. there what sort of routine might you have uh, in your life for being able to face the good days and then knowing that there are bad days coming? How do you get a routine that helps you get through those dark places? I think firstly we need to touch on knowing that there could be dark days in the future. I think that one of the most powerful sayings that I really focus on every single day is that my head needs to be where my body's at. And the reason why I share that is so often in life we are so fearful of what might be tomorrow. We're so regretful of what could have been yesterday. We forget to focus on what is right now. And I think the way that we become the best version of ourselves is by truly being present. We release the fear of tomorrow, the disappointment of yesterday, and we just focus on enjoying the joy that is right now. So that is, you know, just the first first thing that came to mind when I heard that question. But I do, I, I have a three-step routine that helps me greatly dealing with pain and adversity and mental suffering that we all go through every day. And the three steps are move, share, and help. The first thing is about moving. I think that it's really important that we somehow stay active. I'm not, you know, for those that don't know who I am, I'm, I'm not a big guy. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm 60 kilos when I've got my clothes on and, they, and they're wet. There's not much of me. If I stand side on, I look like a cardboard cutout. So I don't go to the gym. I don't lift massive weights, but I move. I need to make sure that I get the heart pumping some way, whether it's a run, a walk, a ride on a stationary bike, whatever it is to somehow get that movement going, get the endorphins flowing. The second step is sharing, and I'm sure everybody's heard it. A problem shared is a problem hard. And I think that especially right now in the world that we live in, it is not a sign of weakness, but rather a sign of strength. When you put your hand up and want to share and communicate with a counsellor, a peer, a colleague, a friend, a coach, somebody to get that pain off your chest. That's been a huge step for me. You know, I, I thought for a, quite a long time that it was, a, a, it was showing weakness. But when you show vulnerability, it shows strength. And that gave me a huge lift in being able to share my feelings. And then the last step is to help. When you help somebody that is less fortunate than what you are, when you help somebody that can never, ever return a favor, I promise you, your life changes forever. Your perspective shifts, your mindset shifts. You begin to see value in who you are. You start to love you and invest in you and value you. And now your confidence increases and and your mental strength increases. So now you can overcome those dark days with a great sense of purpose and appreciation. And as long as you have that stability of faith 
in the heart, then I think those three steps can be a profound impact uh, and influence on your ability to deal with, with, uh, with those dark days. Let's talk about living today because you don't know what tomorrow will hold. The idea of re-evaluating your priorities. Uh, we were talking about this uh, just a short while back, uh, a self-centeredness and an other-centeredness. Uh, you've got God in the mix of your priorities. Is it ever too late to re-evaluate? And I imagine this happens uh, in some level of frequency. We're always coming back to how we re-evaluate our priorities. What are your thoughts for people right now who are thinking, wow, I can see even Michael, in all of the things that he's gone through, he's got a great healthy way of looking at this, but I imagine you have to yourself keep coming back and talking about those priorities and, and where God is, in fact, in the mix of those. Yeah, I think it's it's a constant reminder. It's a constant evolution of thought process and change uh, and and prioritising what's truly important. You know, I, I, our world changed, obviously, 10 weeks ago. Um, when when this COVID nineteen hit, just like it did for everybody, you know, I I had sixty eight events cancel on me in one day. That was my pretty much my entire calendar for the year gone. And then my wife came home and told me that she had been laid off. Uh, we have a big mortgage here where we live. Um, in two thousand and sixteen, I wanted to give back to my mum, so I bought her a beautiful home because uh, things were going pretty well. And uh, now that's tough. You know, everything had to evolve. Everything had to change. And I really had to focus on my priorities. And what's amazing is so often we only pray in darkness or so often we only pray when things are good because we start to speak gratitude towards God. But I think that as long as you prioritize him first in everything that you do, then that humility and that integrity starts to shine through and people see that. And I think that he has our, our blueprint already laid out in front of us. We've just got to, we've just got to walk in that, that path that has been set for us. And, you know, I, I really believe that our dreams, our goals and our visions need to be set in concrete, but the, the path on our way to that place is always in sand. So we need to be flexible, have the ability to evolve and dip and jump and swerve when we can but as long as we keep our eye on the on the on the prize, which is uh, which is our Lord, then I think that that can really see us shine through. And I'm sure I'm sure that you would agree with that, Neil. Yeah, Michael. Lots of dimensions in your life. All of the challenges from those early years, the challenges that we won't uh, avoid that they do continue today. But you've had corporate success, you've had some sporting success, uh, you've got this international bestseller status in the books that you write, you're in fact having opportunities and uh, let's expect those to continue uh, when you can stand before a crowd again because uh, even those things are not always guaranteed right now but uh, opportunity to stand on platforms with other famous people. How do you reflect on what is valuable in our lives here? How would you uh, evaluate what your greatest achievement might be? Yeah, I, I reflect back on some great things that have occurred in my life. Overcoming some pretty serious health challenges is, is a great thing. Uh, losing, losing my way in my faith and then discovering it again was, was phenomenal. Uh, being able to represent my country, 
being able to travel the world as a speaker, you know, the orphanage, the school, buying mum a house, all those things were great. But I think the one thing that I wanted more than anything um, was the one thing the doctors said I'd never be able to achieve, and that was to one day become a dad. You know, to be a father, I think, is the greatest gift that God can bestow on any of us, uh, to be a parent. And um, in 2017, we announced to the world after many, 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 many years of IVF and lots of loss along the way that we, um, that we were going to have a baby in the end of February 2018. And that was, without a doubt, 166 news channels wanted to share our story with the world. And it was just such an exciting time of our life. And we were so ready to be parents. You know, we tried so hard to adopt out of Haiti and we couldn't do that due to trafficking and and now all of a sudden it was the miracle had presented itself to us and uh, so we were due to have a baby end of February on the uh, on the 8th of December 2017 my wife was 29 weeks pregnant she had a lot of back pain we went to the hospital they told us that she was two centimeters dilated we were immediately airlifted to Sydney Hospital and um, she was pumped full of every drug you can imagine. And um, four days later, at 6.40 p.m. on the 12th of December, um, we had a beautiful little boy <laughs> named, named Lachlan James, who was, um, who was 10 weeks premature, who only weighed two pounds, who was very, very, very unwell. Uh, he was taken away from us. He was put in intensive care unit level three where we couldn't hold him. We couldn't kiss him. We couldn't nurture him. We just couldn't be parents. And um, we just felt so helpless and so alone, even though we continued to pray every day. And every day seemed to just get stronger and stronger, and we couldn't believe it, and the doctors couldn't believe it. And, and uh, after four weeks, they gave us the most exciting news that they were going to transfer her little boy back from Sydney Hospital to Cox Hospital. Have we... At least we were closer to home. Mm -hmm. And we were just so, so excited to be heading back home. And we got back to the Coffs Harbour Hospital. We went back to our house. We had a big party that night, obviously, without, without our little boy. And then uh, we got a phone call that night from the hospital. They told us to come real quick. We raced to the hospital. I went into one room with the doctor. My wife went into another room with our little boy. And sadly, he told us that he believed our little boy had um, contracted an illness called sepsis, a blood disease. They told us that we had maybe four days with our little boy. And I remember walking out of the room and my wife said, what did the doctor say? And I told her that everything was going to be okay. We were airlifted back to Sydney that night. And I remember so clearly and so vividly as his heart stopped, I was just yelling out saying, God, you know, take, take my house, take my car, take my assets, take my career, take everything that I've ever accomplished in my life, but please don't take my little boy. And um, he kept fighting. And four days later, after they told us he wouldn't be here anymore, um, we captured his first little smile. And 
That was uh, that was two and a half years ago, and he is a healthy, happy, gorgeous, beautiful little baby boy, and we are just so grateful for the gift that God has given us. And you know, he he craps more than we could imagine, <laughs> and he uh, he eats more than we could imagine. But I got to tell you, Neil, we we love him more than we could ever imagine. And someone said to me one day, they said, Michael, geez, you've been dealt with some really crappy cards, and. I remember saying back to them, whilst ever I'm being dealt cards, that means I'm still in the game. And whilst ever I'm still in the game, it's about how I choose to play those cards that allows me to live a remarkable life. And I say to all your listeners, Neil, don't don't spend your life comparing your cards to other people. Be grateful that you still have cards. Be grateful that you're still in the game and play those cards as effectively as what you can. Well, Lachlan James, a little miracle and a chip off the old block too by the sound of it because uh, (laughs) he's he's a fighter like you were a fighter. And interestingly, because as we were saying earlier, when you're just a baby, your fighting really comes down to how much your parents are in the game and uh, calling the shots and making decisions. Uh, You don't have too much you know, what the doctors do is really beyond your control. But little Lachlan James, I'm sure, Michael, that, uh, you know, changing nappies and doing all the stuff, cleaning up after children, that's just, a, that's almost a pleasure for you when you when you think of all of the challenges that you could have been going through right now. Yeah, perspective is a powerful thing. Listening to the news <laughs> before and the uh, AFL boys are whinging because they don't have bullets in their resort <laughs> rooms. You know, I, I'm, I, I laugh at that and I think, geez, one day they'll get faced with a real problem and they will really have to wake up to themselves and start to appreciate the little things. Michael, let's talk about where others are. And just a couple of minutes remaining for our conversation, I do want to tell listeners how they can get a hold of your book. And we'll, we'll tell them in just a few moments. But a lot of people right now doing it tough because of the economic crisis we're facing. You know, lost jobs, lost hours, businesses that have been in hibernation, people are facing some challenging times ahead. I wonder if you've got an insight or two as we're talking about having a, a perspective Uh, here for listeners who might have been going through health challenges i don't know whether there's too many are going to be able to match the health challenge stories that you've been able to tell but lots of people going through hard times right now what's your encouragement to people who might be thinking about uh, you know i've heard this story and priorities and all sorts of things like that What, what, what would you say to people today I think that there are a few simple steps that we really need to do because right now it's about getting our mental state of mind right. You know, what is in our control and what is out of our control are two very important questions. And if we can start to really focus on what is in our control, which is controlling our mindset, I think that's when we can really start to have some positive inroads in becoming and evolving into the best version of ourselves. So I think the first, the first thing that we must do is we must uh, visualise let's say, what Christmas looks like. Let's, let's visualise a time in our life in the future that is going to be hopefully COVID-19 free, filled with joy and happiness and the things that we used to take for granted. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing I think is really important is we must have a chance to digitally detox. I think so often we are spending our lives staring at Facebook and listening to Facebook experts which are just filling us with fear and uncertainty. So the more that we can get away from the digital space and just be with ourselves and pray and spend time being centered and having that relationship can be huge. Uh, Third thing for me is around my daily routine. 
I'm all about activation, meditation, appreciation. Um, I have to get active of a morning. I meditate, and in that space of meditation, I really get deep into prayer, which is amazing. And then I spend time appreciation or writing out a gratitude list of what are the three things that I'm truly grateful for that may go unnoticed in a normal day-to-day life. And then the last thing I think is really powerful and really important is spend 10 minutes, spend an hour, however long you've got, and start with COVID-19. You have taught me so much, and I am grateful for, and we can write it down, chance to slow down, the importance to be present, our relationship, that life is short. You know, that regardless of whether we're rich or poor, we are all equal when it comes to our health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're just four little things that, you know, are what I'm doing right now to try and shift my mindset when things get dark to really be able to not just survive but thrive through these challenging times. Wow. Great insight. Great advice. Let me point people to the book that we have been talking about today, Kids Don't Get Cancer. It is an international bestseller. And, Michael, I know that you'd love listeners to our conversation today to get a hold of your book and and uh, humbled by the idea that you did want to give a special offer to listeners. Uh, give us some insight here into how you'd like to see listeners uh, take up an opportunity here to get a hold of your book. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, absolutely. You can grab my book from my website, michaelcrossland.com. By buying it from my website, all the profits from the book go directly to charity, uh, in particular supporting the orphanage and the school in Haiti, but also the fire victims uh, from late last year. And in the promotional code, when you go to check out, if you type in the word mother, obviously she is my rock and my inspiration. Um, By typing that in, it'll take 35% off the bill. So if you type that in, that'll uh, bring the book down to dollars or something and I will personally sign it and send it up to you today or out to you wherever you are in the world and um, yeah just so so grateful for the opportunity to share a little of my journey with your audience Neil and an opportunity to hopefully make an impact on just one person's life to pay that good deed forward and you know I love that saying they tried to bury me but they didn't realize I was a seed. Uh, yeah great stuff. Hey, Michael, I'm sure there are lots listening who would love to get a hold of your book. And as you say, go to the website michaelcrossland.com. You can get the book on Amazon or Booktopia or uh, probably every other bookselling site. But if you get it from Michael Crossland's website today, uh, use that promo code MOTHER and you'll get a 35% discount. And as Michael says, he'll personally sign the book as it gets sent out to you. You will be encouraged. It is an amazing story. Kids Don't Get Cancer is the name of the book. Kids Don't Get Cancer. The website, michaelcrossland.com. Michael, thank you so much for taking some time today and sharing your thoughts, your insights, Uh, sharing your heart with us. It's just been a blessing, and thank you so much for being with us on 2020. My pleasure, Neil. God bless you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.